You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Let me welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we are recording this on April 27th, 2021, and our discussion today is going to focus on the Bundestag election campaign, which is getting uh, underway and uh, and really uh, you know heating up. Uh, and we're going to review some of the uh, latest developments, what they might mean for the outcome, and what issues and events we need to be on the lookout for between now and September 26th as we try to understand where Germany is headed. Uh, I'm really glad to have with us today, uh, this is a repeat performance uh, in a way of an earlier discussion we had. Uh, Eric Langenbacher is with us, a senior fellow and director of the AICGS Society Culture and Politics Program. And we also have with us once again, uh, Julian Müller-Kaller, uh, who is a non-resident fellow at AICGS, uh, in addition to his many other uh, affiliations, including with the Atlantic Council. So um, uh, great to have both of you back with us. And Eric is gonna guide us through today's discussion. So let me uh, let me give uh, give the floor to him and uh, we'll we'll get right into it. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned the date that we are recording this because, uh, you know, those of us that are studying Germany, looking at the campaign are um, very cognizant of the polling. And uh, depending on what day it actually is, the polls seem to be all over the case, all over the place. So, um, you know, good for that. But I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the CDU. Um, as as uh, our listeners probably know, uh, last week, the CDU chose their chancellor candidate, who was actually the CDU party chair, Armin Laschet. Uh, it was a very controversial and contentious kind of battle between him and the Bavarian minister, President Markus Suda, who comes from the closely allied but separate party, the CSU, the Christian Social Union. Uh, but the decisions made, uh, looking at the polls, it doesn't seem to be a very po popular decision. Um, but um, what are your thoughts on um, Armin Laschet and his chances in the election? Well, first of all, I think uh, you know, th there are two main uh, stories, I think, that come through this, uh, this internecine battle for the chancellor candidacy. On the one hand, uh, clearly from looking at uh, surveys of public opinion, the, the average German voter uh, is much more uh, enthusiastic about, much more likely to vote for Markus Zuder. As, uh, as a chancellor candidate or with him at the top of the ticket uh, than, than for Armin Laschet. So uh, this was a decision in a way against the numbers. Markus Zuder tried to emphasize uh, in the weeks leading up to the decision that he had better chances uh, to, uh, to do well in the election, but ultimately those arguments didn't carry the day. The, the, the second thing that I think is, uh, is important to keep in mind is that Armin Laschet demonstrated his um, his ability, his his skill in uh, managing uh, his own party, managing the decision-making process, and in coming out on top. Now, um, you know, that has been criticized by some who see it as, uh, including Marcus Zoder, who described it as sort of backroom dealing at one point. Um, but ultimately, uh, Laschet uh, had, the, had the skill and the tenacity to force through his own candidacy. Um, the question now is, can he turn that tenacity and political skill um, outward from his own uh, party in the CDU-CSU context to persuade voters that he is the man to lead Germany for the next 
four years. What speaks in Armin Laschet's favor is that he has rebounded uh, from from uh, uh, trailing in the polls in the past, uh, including in his uh, victory in the North Rhine-Westphalia uh, election most recently. And, and so that's his argument. Uh, I know how to win elections, and I'm going to do it again this time. Uh, but he has a real uphill battle because he has a, a sort of emerging juggernaut uh, uh, opposing him, which I think we'll talk about uh, uh, very, very soon in this conversation. Yeah, in fact, that's my next question for Julian. Uh, so the Greens have also chosen their chancellor candidate, um, and then they decided on Annalena Baerbock. Uh, who was, again, not as popular as the other option, her uh, co-chair, Robert Habeck. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I've seen anything like it for a long time. The amount of positive media coverage in Germany and also in the United States and elsewhere about uh, Baerbock's candidacy. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, her as a chancellor candidate and her chances? Well, I think it's very interesting to actually compare the way the Greens handled um, the dilemma of who should be the, the candidate of the party for the chancellery and how the Conservative Party has handled it. Um, and, you know, there was this recent interview in one of the German uh, leading German newspapers where they compared it and the, they said the only difference is that the Greens really turned it into a positive show and uh, showed united, a united front after the decision while the Conservative Party, there was more, much more drama involved in the situation, which I think is a fair characterization. Maybe if I can add one thing um, to um, Jeff's point about the Conservative, I think it also illustrated the power dynamics within the Conservative Party that if a CDU, so from the, from the, the Christian Democratic Union uh, fraction of the party, wants to be the chancellor, it's, it's almost in every case they're going to be that way. And only if that person um, declines, the CSU uh, candidate has a real shot at being the nominee of the Conservative Party. In the Greens, I think the race was much more open. Uh, if you remember the um, environment and the attention that was paid to Robert Habeck, he even came to Washington, D.C. Uh, a few months uh, back, um, and he was almost kind of in the leading position to become the party's um, nominee for the upcoming Bundestag election. However, the dynamics have changed, particularly due to, to the pandemic and his inability to campaign publicly. Um, Annalena Baerbock is, is a person that's extremely well connected within the party. Um, and it was said that if she, particularly as a woman in the Green Party, wanted to be the nominee, uh, he would have to be... Um, declining uh, his um, position in that regard, which she ultimately wanted. And I think the Greens have turned it into a success story, um, showed a united front. Um, you know, uh, um, Habeck said that it was a bitter moment for him, but uh, it, it, there's this nice phrase that's uh, going around in the German news media that she defeated, we, she, she won the battle without defeating him. And I think that's a nice way to phrase it at the moment. So I want to talk a little bit about the um, strengths and weaknesses of these two main candidates. Um, of course, there are other candidates out there. Olaf Scholz has been the candidate for the SPD, the Social Democrats, since last summer. But I think that there is a very, very low chance that the SPD will um, lead the next government. So I think it really is a kind of horse race between Baerbock and Laschet. Um, you know, um, Baerbock stands for youth, stands for change, stands for a new direction. 
Um, Lashet stands for continuity, not just continuity with the conservatives in power, but continuity with kind of a Merkelian uh, politics of the center. Uh, but, you know, I mean, every decision is, has some risk involved. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Baerbock, what her strengths and weaknesses are. Um, I think that for a lot of Germans, it might be very concerning that this is someone who, although she's been in party politics for, what, 12, 15 years, she's only been in the Bundestag since 2013, and she's never had any kind of ministerial experience. Do you think that that's going to be a liability that will ultimately doom her and her party's successes? Uh, Jeff, maybe uh, you go first. So I don't think it is, um, you know, that it is fate uh, that her lack of executive experience is going to doom her candidacy. It's clearly a liability in some ways, and and sh she and the party clearly recognize it because they've they've tried to address it head on, both in the uh, event where they launched her candidacy and in interviews that she's conducted since then. And essentially what her response has boiled down to is, um, you know, on the one hand that she has a reputation for, uh, for her substantive um, strengths and understandings, understanding of policy. Um, but the more, the more cutting uh, retort is that, as she put it, you know, she stands uh, for change and renewal. And if you want the status quo, you should look elsewhere. And so the bet that uh, that Baerbock and the Greens are making is that there is a a growing desire within the German electorate for a change, and you can see some indications of that because first of all, uh, Angela Merkel has been Chancellor now for nearly sixteen years, and uh, and so uh, you know there is there is a natural uh, tendency toward uh, toward wanting to move in a different direction. But I think more the more compelling case uh, that that Baerbock has been trying to make is that it's it's not just about the length of time. It's that the the CDU led governments under Merkel have failed to address the problems of the future. Uh, that is the the green energy transition, the ways that technology is changing the economy, and and she has coupled that with prosperity. Uh, in other words. The, the ongoing prosperity and success of the German economy depends on new policies now that the CDU, CSU have been unable to deliver in government. So I think that is, uh, you know, is, being able to turn that uh, narrative around is crucial to the green success uh, in, in the September election. Julian? I agree very much with Jeff. I think this almost populist narrative that the Greens are embracing with, you know, being the party for change and against the status quo, um, I think is exactly what their campaign is all about. I would probably add also that the pandemic plays a big role. The current poll numbers also indicate that there is a big dissatisfaction with um, the way that the current government is handling the crisis. Um, but that's why I'm also saying that one should, should be a bit cautious believing the poll numbers now, because if we move into the summer and an increased vaccine rollout, and if you compare the last uh, summer um, with the virus uh, effects being less visible and life was almost back to normal completely, you might actually see an uptick in the polls and the support for the current government, including additional support for the Conservative Party. So I think the fault lines are really uh, along the lines that Jeff and you, Eric, have, have described. 
So the Greens stand for kind of a new era of politics uh, against the status quo, while the Conservative, as well as the SPD and uh, Schultz campaign motto is specifically about that, embrace um, the idea of continuity and reliability uh, in, in the German uh, governance system uh, at that point. Um, but, you know, let's switch gears a little bit because uh, no German government is ever comprised of one party and one party alone. They're um, always, or okay, maybe once during the Adenauer era, um, uh, almost always coalition governments. Uh, so the Greens or the CDU will not be able to unilaterally impose their agenda on the country. They're gonna have to negotiate and go into a coalition with uh, other partner or partners. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what some of the scenarios are for governing coalitions. Um, you know, let, let me begin with one observation. I think for a long time, many people have assumed that it's gonna be a black green. So CDU, CSU, green government. I mean, one of the things that's interesting now that the campaign is, is, is really getting going is, well, it might be green black, right? As in Baden-Württemberg, but it might be black green. But, you know, if you look at some of these public opinion polls, I saw one today where you know, those two parties are only at 46% of the vote, which would not be enough to, well, I mean, there's some idiosyncrasies to the German electoral law, but that's probably not enough to have a majority of seats in the parliament. So it's increasingly likely that for the first time in um, post-war German history, we will have a three-party coalition. This was something that was mooted last time when Merkel had uh, exploratory talks with the FDP and the Greens, and actually fell apart because of uh, mainly because of a of a, a disagreement between the FDP and the Greens. But we could very likely have our first three party coalition. Now, what that will be will obviously depend on you know who comes out on top, second, third, fourth in the Bundestag election. But uh, Jeff, maybe beginning with you, would you like to share some thoughts on possible or probable coalition governments? Yeah. Uh, so let me start by just uh, pointing out, you know, we are eight days uh, out from the decision of both parties uh, for, uh, you know, for who will be the chancellor candidate. And in that time, there have been six uh, polls that were conducted subsequent to that um, decision. And, and in those six polls, at least the ones I'm aware of, the Greens are ahead in three of them. Um, one of them has the, the Greens even with the CDU-CSU, and in two, the CDU-CSU is ahead. So, um, you know, trend toward the Greens, but, you know, not yet a, a long enough trend to be absolutely sure. The, the, the most likely uh, option, um, ideologically um, and, and in the arithmetic, seems to be the so-called, you know, Ampel uh, or tra uh, traffic light uh, coalition, the Greens uh, with the SPD and the Liberals, the FDP. Uh, that is uh, possible in all of the polls uh, that have come out. And, you know, it's the most comfortable uh, majority in those scenarios. And, you know, th this in a way, uh, you know, this reflects uh, state level coalitions that exist already in Germany. Of course, in the past, uh, You've had both the Greens uh, and the FDP in coalitions with the Social Democrats, so there is uh, you know historical precedent for it. But this would be, as you say, the, a a challenging coalition negotiation um, at the federal level, and and you know we can talk more about some of the 
policy difficulties that would arise. But I think the other uh, thing to keep in mind is that the numbers would also be there for a uh, a, a second try at the so-called Jamaica coalition, that is the CDU-CSU with the SPD and, uh, sorry, with the FDP and the Greens. Um, and even for, in, in some of the polls, for a left-wing coalition. Um, and this is something that we've been looking at uh, also in, in the election series, era that you've been leading. So there are increasingly um, uh, many options uh, that could be available after the election. Julian? Yeah, I agree very much. I think uh, there is additional volatility due to um, Merkel's um, you know, exit from the political stage. So you had a figure that uh, you know, dominated uh, German politics um, and German governance for uh, almost, you know, two decades. Um, uh, and with her leaving the stage, it really is an open array of um, different opportunities. Uh, I agree very much with Jeff and, and his analysis. I think the key takeaway uh, from all of this is that there won't be a German government without the Greens in 2021. Um, you know, either whether it is going to be a conservative party doing a coalition with the Greens under Green or conservative leadership, or whether it is the Greens seeking, um, you know, out a ample coalition, so-called ample coalition with the Social Democrats um, or uh, and or the FDP uh, and the Linke, the, the Greens will can expect to be in government um, after the next Bundestag elections, which obviously uh, is a significant change if you think about how the party has started as kind of this anti-establishment uh, notion and then had this uh, government stint with the Social Democrats in the early 2000s and made decisive uh, decisions, particularly with the no to the Iraq war uh, and Joschka Fischer's time as, as foreign minister. Um, but the, the party has changed over time and it has become um, more realist in a way, um, even though that has uh, different implications um, for its foreign policy. But I think the main takeaway is that given current projections, and even if the Greens uh, continue to um, you know, uh, poll at that level or decline, the Greens will be part of, of the next German government. If I could just uh, highlight, pick up one uh, element there, um, and that is, you know, this is this has by no means been a foregone conclusion. The fact that that you now have um, it's that it appears impossible to form a government without the Greens is a tribute to the um, the, the hard work of Baerbock and Robert Habeck, among others, um, along with others in the Greens, to uh, to you know steer them toward the center and make them an appealing party not only for their hardcore base, which has always been, you know, somewhere around the 10% level, uh, but to open it up and to demonstrate their successes uh, in ways that uh, that make them attractive and and viable. Uh, so so this is, uh, you know, this is a, an achievement of the current green leadership, uh, not just a kind of amorphous change in the German public opinion. Absolutely. And I think what the Greens also um, illustrate or exemplify in a, in a perfect manner almost is that they really have the appeal of a Volkspartei at the moment. So you have, uh, you know, people from all sorts of um, spectrums uh, of the public um, finding a way or finding a reason why, of sh why they should support the Greens. You had people, you know, who are fed up with 
grand coalition governments and the political establishment who this populist appeal that the Greens to some extent as an anti-establishment party have is appealing. You have um, the, the core base, as Jeff mentioned, um, the, the green base who want to highlight um, climate issues. Um, then you have even disappointed conservative uh, supporters that you know, can find uh, something in the Greens, particularly due to Kretschmann and his government in, in Baden-Württemberg in the south of Germany. So you really have an, an overarching narrative that can appeal to certain parts of the public, which I think sums up to the current um, high of the Greens in the poll. You know, I definitely agree with that point, but we also have to keep in mind that every party's strategy um, could alienate some voters as well. So I know that as, as pragmatic and realo as the Greens have become under Baerbock and Habeck, you know, there, there's some dissatisfaction in, you know, the kind of like hardcore, perhaps more leftist, more progressive, more fundamentalist, fundy kind of faction. So, you know, there's limits to how far to the center the Greens can go. It's a similar dilemma that the CDU has, right? I mean, we haven't talked as much about the divisions within the CDU, but, you know, let's not forget that you know, Laschet barely won the party chair uh, position back in January. It's a very evenly divided party between those that want to continue in a more uh, uh, centrist manner and those that think that the CDU needs to, you know, tack to the right, especially because you still have the AFD there. In fact, that's one of the things I'd like to kind of talk about before we run out of time are the parties that can be spoilers in this whole thing. You know, it's really quite interesting. I think since the pandemic began, um, and maybe this was wishful thinking, I don't know. But it seems that the AFD has lost a lot of its momentum, a lot of the traction that it was getting. But if you look at the polls, they haven't completely, you know, collapsed. They're still in the 9, 10, 11. I saw a poll today that had them at 12%, which is not far below their 12.6% from 2017, which really did put a spanner in the works and made it much more difficult to form a government. Uh, there's also the left party, um, although the left party seems to be a bit of a shell of its former self, uh, pulling at seven or eight percent, well below the nine and change that it got back in um, in uh, 2017. But if the Greens alienate the more leftist voters, that could be a boost to the left party. It seems that the SPD doesn't benefit from anything these days, which is, you know, sad. But, you know, it is what it is, as uh, you know, somebody once said. But what about the spoilers? Uh, Julian, maybe we could begin with you, because I know you've done a lot of work on the AFD over time. And I think it's interesting that you keep coming back to the fact that the Greens have a bit of a populist-ish kind of feeling to them uh, this time. But what are your thoughts on how the AFD is going to do? Yeah, so I think that crises like the, the coronavirus, um, as well as, as other uh, indicators, uh, are usually a sign um, where people have the ability to get, regain faith in the problem-solving capacity of, of, of government institutions. So um, I believe that the reason why the AfD lost support over the course of last year is because the entire populist narrative of, you know, you don't, the government is doing a horrible job and bureaucracy is, you know, out there to get the average voter isn't as powerful in a moment of severe crisis where you actually need a sufficient government response. The 10% that um, you describe, Eric, I think it's just the, the very alienated people in the German public that, you know, no matter kind of the political trends, they will always stick to this, um, to, to a somewhat radical 
uh, party in that regard, and it's going to be very hard for other parties to appeal to those 10%. So I think the IFD is somewhat establishing itself as a force within uh, the German uh, political system, which a lot of analysts have described as a natural phenomenon, because for a very long time, you didn't have a party like this in the German parliament, with, while in other, part, in other countries in, in Europe, you've, you've had that somewhat like um, right-wing populist uh, force for, for quite some time. Um, but I, I, I do think that um, this, this anti-establishment narrative is somewhat embraced by the Greens as well. So people who are either not interested in politics or uh, don't you know, want to uh, see another grand coalition of kind of this consensus-oriented um, governance for the last uh, years are somewhat looking for a fresh face. Uh, and um, that's how the Greens at least try to turn their inexperience in and Annalena Baerbock in particular, turn, trying to turn that into an advantage. And you've seen a similar trend inside the Conservative Party with Friedrich Merz, who has clearly been an anti-establishment figure, um, trying to embrace that uh, as well. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, the combination of uh, the desire for continuity as well as the desire for change. And I think a lot will depend, and that's why I say, I say that one should look at the numbers and the polls with caution, because I think once the narrative changes, and I think it is going to be to change in the summer uh, due to lower case numbers, once the third wave is over, I think satisfaction with uh, the government is going to increase, which will boost pool, polls of the, of the Conservative Party. So I think you're going to see a little bit of an outbalance uh, down the road until the September election, because it's still a few months away. Jeff? So I think uh, with respect to the AFD, um, uh, there is a particular opportunity they have in Eastern Germany. Um, that has been their stronghold in terms of um, their percentage of the vote um, going back uh, quite a long time. You know, they are in the 20 to 25% range in state level elections in, in Eastern Germany. Now, of course, there are fewer voters in Eastern Germany, so that's not enough to uh, to propel them to new heights in terms of Germany's overall balance of political power. But uh, the fact that the CDU and CSU have ch chosen a moderate candidate um, for the chancellery and that Marka Zuder uh, from the CSU was much more popular uh, in Eastern Germany, and indeed uh, Friedrich Merz as a candidate for the party leadership was also more popular in Eastern Germany. You have this potential gap, which the AFD could exploit um, uh, if they are skillful um, uh, and if the voters are disaffected enough, that they could consolidate their strength as an East German populist um, uh, party um, in ways that are, I think, not going to be good for the divisions in Germany uh, moving forward, even if it doesn't get the AFD to, to a point where they can really affect federal politics more than they do right now. Well, I see that we're almost running out of time, so maybe we can um, move to some like, final thoughts. I was laughed at myself when um, Julian was talking about both the Greens and Friedrich Merz being anti-establishment. I mean, Friedrich Merz is, is the embodiment of the establishment as far as I'm concerned. I mean, heir apparent to Kohl Schäuble. I mean, Merkel's the one that outmaneuvered him. And then he goes on to a you know, successful um, career with multi-million remuneration at BlackRock, Germany. And the Greens, I mean, I, I think you're right that they still have an aura of outsiderness. But I mean, come on, they're in 11 out of 16 uh, state governments the last time that I um, checked. 
And, uh, you know, they've been running Baden-Württemberg, one of the richest, if not the richest of the um, German states, you know, and then, and they've been, you know, they've already had previous national governmental experience as well. So, you know, maybe they get one more chance with this kind of outsider uh, status and maybe it will all come together this year. But, you know, I, I was laughing to myself just, uh, uh, just a little bit. I mean, my final um, observation, there's a quote that I've been using for years, but I want to bring it up again. And that was, I think, vis-a-vis -vis the 2009 Bundestag election, where some American columnist um, uh, likened it to a city council um, race in Würzburg. I know that Julian's from near Würzburg, so he might like that, i.e. boring. And if there's one thing that we can say already, and yes, it's not even May yet, but uh, this is not going to be a boring campaign. So for the first time in many electoral cycles, I think the campaign's going to matter. It's something that we're going to have to watch very closely. All the more reason for people to tune in to um, content that we're doing here at AICGS. But uh, yeah, definitely stay tuned. Uh, Julian, some final thoughts? Oh, I mean, the, 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 the populism discussion obviously is a constant uh, reoccurring theme. And, uh, you know, who, those people who have declared themselves or have identified be, as populists uh, are, have often been figures that know the establishment or the policy process rather well. Uh, the pol the, the, the lit political science literature calls them mavericks um, in a way of, you know, people who know the system and know how corrupt it is. And that's why they are the ones who can fix it. Um, Friedrich Merz certainly played that card um, while running for uh, CDU uh, chairmanship. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, these days everybody is a populist and no one is a populist at the same time. So um, one has to be cautious using the word. Um, but the, the, the desire for change, I think, is a, is a constant um, companion of uh, today's political campaigns because there is uh, some dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I think that force should not be underestimated when looking at politics, both in the United States as well as in Germany. So yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that the CDU still has, uh, you know, great structural advantages in uh, in this political system. Um, Germany is a relatively risk averse um, society. Uh, it is uh, it is a place where voters value stability um, and uh, to a degree also consensus. So uh, if it, and the CDU has come through a very traumatic period over the last uh, two years or so. Uh, the, the Merkel stepping down as party leader, the election of Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer as leader who only lasted a little more than a year. Uh, and then the, the extended period of this election because of the COVID uh, pandemic, that is the, this leadership election. So, you know, that may... Th that could be a low point, um, and they may be able to recover uh, their their momentum um, if the if economic growth picks back up, and if there can be progress on the forward-looking elements of the COVID recovery, that is vaccination and so forth. Right now, Germany is stuck in a very inward-looking and kind of present and past-focused. Um, uh, uh, politics of of uh, kind of lockdowns and control measures, uh, rather than the how how you get out of this and what it looks like as you come out of it. So there is uh, a lot of uh, opportunity for Laschet to try to pick up on that and uh, to profile his actions as the leader of Germany's largest state. But 
you know, this uh, this may be the year when uh, when things are are finally all aligned against them, and uh, and and so this is going to make uh, make our work interesting for the next uh, five months, and and I hope keep listeners uh, and viewers and readers uh, coming back to us uh, as we we go through the most remarkable uh, election campaign uh, in, in perhaps a generation. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.